May Christy and I, it's crazy to think about, about five and a half years ago, we were in China and we were finishing up the adoption of our little daughter, Ellie-Ann. And we were going through the process and with each day while we were there, uh, we had a, a certain item on the checklist that we had to do to complete our adoption. And one of the things they advised me as a pastor is our adoption agency said, don't tell them you're a pastor. Okay, could totally ruin the adoption process. So for years, we've been going through all of this, and we get to the final stage where we have to stand before a guy, and we get in his office, and he begins asking questions, and he says, well, what do you do for a living? And I was kind of prepared. I said, well, I'm a teacher. And he goes, oh, what do you teach? <laughs> I was like, well, here we go. I said, I teach the Bible. And his eyes lit up. He goes, really? I know the Bible. And we began having a conversation about the gospel. And it was a rich conversation. And it was so great that he forgot to sign the papers. <laughs> and so we totally had to have our trip kind of turned upside down for a few days while we were trying to figure out, we got to go back and see this guy to get his signature. You see, without the authority and the power of this guy's name, we were unable to complete the adoption. You see, names matter. And there is authority and power behind names. Well, when we get to Acts chapter 4, we find that God gives a name that is more powerful, more valuable, and a name that is higher than any other name. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're studying the book of Acts together as a faith family. It has been riveting for me to see the work of the Spirit in which we see Him working among the early church. We see miracles taking place, powerful preaching, thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. And indeed, what began in the person and work of Jesus is now carrying forward by the power of the Holy Spirit through these disciples that Jesus has invested in. When we get to Acts 4, we see where the first persecution has now taken place with the church. And in Acts 4, beginning with verse 5, the scripture says this. The scripture says, The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved." Peter and John are arrested for preaching the resurrection of Jesus to the Jews. And they're put on trial before the Sanhedrin with an opportunity to preach Jesus and give an answer for their hope in Christ. So this morning, I want you to notice what's happening in the text and then what this means for us. 
The first thing I want you to see is the Sanhedrin's high-stakes interrogation of the apostles. The Sanhedrin's high-stake interrogation of the apostles. Now, let me paint the picture of the Sanhedrin. If you go back to Numbers chapter 11, you see where God tells Moses to choose 70 elders who will help him lead. These 70 elders then form the Sanhedrin. Their job is to interpret and to apply the Old Testament. And so the Sanhedrin has been meeting. They would meet in the tabernacle, and then eventually once the temple was built, they would meet in the temple. And they would meet every day, except for the Sabbath and except for holidays, in which they would study and interpret the law and apply the law. Well, you fast forward 1,300 years from Moses to the time of Peter and John, and we catch up with them in Acts 4. And they're surrounding Peter and John and this lame man who has been healed by Peter and John by the power of the Spirit. And they're in an amphitheater-type setting. Okay, that these Jewish leaders, they're interrogating them, trying to understand what happened in this miracle. How in the world did you take a man who's a lame beggar outside the temple, and now all of a sudden he's walking and leaping and he's praising God? And so these Jewish leaders, they're trying to understand what's happened in light of Deuteronomy 13. Now stay with me, stay with me. According to Deuteronomy 13, if someone performs a miracle and then points to other gods, this is what the Lord says. Do not listen to that prophet's words. For the Lord your God is testing you. You must follow the Lord your God and fear him. You must keep his commands and listen to him. You must worship him and remain faithful to him. That prophet must be put to death because he has urged rebellion against the Lord your God. You must purge the evil from you. Now, hold on to that Deuteronomy 13 passage because we're going to come back to that here in a few moments. All right, so the Sanhedrin, they're interpreting Peter and John's miracle and they're wondering, are these guys going to preach foreign gods? Who are they going to give credit to? Where did they get their power and authority? See, what's happening here is this Sanhedrin, as they're interrogating them, they have the authority to kill Peter and John. This is not a heated debate between you and your boss. This is not a, an academic exercise on a debate team. Life and death are at stake here in Acts chapter 4. The Sanhedrin, according to Deuteronomy 13, has the authority to kill Peter and John if they give credit to someone other than the Lord our God. And yet we also got to keep in mind about the Sanhedrin that many, not all, but many of them are corrupt. These guys are the same group that in the cover of night, a few months earlier, arrested, interrogated, and condemned Jesus. For it was Annas and Caiaphas, verse 6, who were instrumental in overseeing the mock trials of Jesus. They concocted these absurd accusations about Jesus. They lied about him in order to condemn him. And now Simon, Peter, and John are standing before this same group of men who condemned Jesus. And now they're putting them on trial. And they ask Peter and John one question. Verse 7. By what power or in what name have you done this? They're asking, where do you get your authority? How did you do this? Because this didn't come from you. 
But before we get to Peter's response, let's not miss these moments here. These are witnessing moments that God is bringing to Peter and to John. And may I say to you, God is going to bring them to you as well. Now, you may not ever stand before a Jewish Supreme Court, but you will have opportunities in which you will stand before a group of people to have an opportunity to point to Christ. It could be before a ball team. It could be for your company. It could be when the media puts a camera in your face. Opportunities that God is going to bring to you to testify to the gospel. This same Peter in chapter 4 would later write in his first epistle, his first letter, in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, Set apart Christ as Lord in your, of your hearts and always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. That word for answer is the word apologia. It's where we get the word for apologetics. That means to have a, a defense, to give a verbal defense of something, to give an answer of something. It's to give a reasoned argument. You see, as followers of Jesus, we're to know what we believe, why we believe it, and how to defend it. And here is Peter standing before 70 men, the Sanhedrin, who have the authority to kill him based upon what he says. And here he is giving this moment as an opportunity, as a springboard to point to Jesus. And may I say to you, we as followers of Christ must be ready as well. That when your moment comes, when you get to stand and testify before a group of doctors or lawyers or coworkers or your neighbors at the fence, and you get to testify to the gospel, you want to seize that moment to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ. Now, beloved, hear me on this. You've got to be prepared not to be liked. You've got to be okay not to be liked by this world. If this world crucified Jesus, why in the world would they like us? It is a fleeting pursuit to seek the praise of man. But you don't want that anyways. You can be faithful to Jesus or you can be faithful to the world, but you can't have both. And what we see is Peter here, he has a decision to make. He can either wince back and save his life and say, you know, it's, you know, I'm, uh, he seizes this moment. But instead of backpedaling or wincing or retreating or waffling, I want you to see what happens. Number two, it's the apostles' counter accusation against the Sanhedrin. Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin with the boldness of a lion, which I find fascinating, y'all. Because just remember, a few months ago, he was right there in Caiaphas' courtyard, backpedaling, waffling, hoping no one would find out that he's a follower of Jesus. For it was there at Caiaphas' courtyard that he denied Jesus three times. I never knew the guy. Who's this Jesus? I'm not with him. And then the rooster crows. It's amazing to me that now here he is months later and he's bold as a lion, unashamed of the gospel. What changed? Verse eight. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. When you have the Spirit of God abiding and resonating in your life, it will give you the boldness of a lion. God will empower you by the Spirit to do things you never thought you could do. The Lord is able to work in you and through you when you yield, when you surrender your life to His control over your life. 
when you allow the Spirit to dictate, to shepherd, and to guide you. It's when you submit to the Spirit, He works and moves in power. Now, Jesus was preparing His disciples and us for this moment. And He said it like this in Luke 12. When Jesus says, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Now, here's the deal. You don't have to be terrified of that moment in the boardroom when you get to testify about Jesus. Because if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're filled with the Spirit, verse 8, He will empower you. He will give you the words. I remember standing in uh, Kenya before an entire school of 800 kids, terrified. I'm sitting here thinking, they're staring at me. What am I going to do? And at that moment, my first few, first, first few times I've ever, ever preached, I stood up and I thought, oh my goodness, here we go. And I just preached my heart out. And it was amazing as I yielded my will to the Spirit how he was able to use that moment and see hundreds of kids respond to the gospel. It wasn't me. (laughs) I'm a doofus. I'm from Kentucky. We can't count with our shoes on. Okay? That's the power of the Spirit. He takes those who are weak and foolish, and he says, ah, I can use that person when they yield and submit to the work of the Spirit. That's what Peter's doing here. But then Peter is very quick to give an explanation as to how this lame beggar has been healed from back in chapter three. And so Peter makes himself abundantly clear. Verse 10, let it be known to you and all Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the name of Jesus is what has healed this man. And with the Sanhedrin listening to the evidence of Peter's defense through the filter of Deuteronomy 13, here's what's happening. Peter is making the declaration that Jesus is the Lord our God of Deuteronomy 13. He's saying, listen, he's the fulfillment of what Moses was talking about. 1,300 years ago, he's right here. This is who I'm talking about. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the one who made this man walk because there's power in the name of Jesus. Jesus alone has the power and the authority to heal. Jesus alone has the power and the authority to give life. And that is what is happening here. He has raised this man up on his feet and empowered him through his servants, Peter and John. And they are quick to say, listen, it ain't about us. Jesus is the one who has done this work. And then Peter pulls back the bow and fires the arrow right into the hearts of each of these 70 men and says, it's this Jesus whom, look at the text, you crucified. Now, If you are standing before people who could kill you, people who could take your life, would you place the accusation upon them? Peter ain't messing around here, y'all. It was members of this Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus. It was members of this Sanhedrin that punched Jesus in the face. It was members of this Sanhedrin that handed Jesus over to Pilate. It was members of this Sanhedrin that incited the crowds to choose Barabbas over Jesus. It was members of this Sanhedrin that provoked the people to crucify Jesus. It was members of this Sanhedrin who were at the cross mocking Jesus to his face. And Peter is reminding them that They are the ones who crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. 
This Jesus is alive. He defeated death. Here is Peter pointing them to the gospel. He's pointing to the power of Christ and what he has done through his death and through his resurrection. But then Peter comes in with a strong left hook by pointing them, verse 11, to Psalm 118, verse 22. And he applies it directly to them. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter is connecting the Psalm 118 fulfillment to the Sanhedrin. These are the builders. These are the guys who are supposed to be building up the kingdom. They're supposed to be those who are helping point people to the Lord. But instead, the very cornerstone of the foundation of the temple, Jesus Christ, they threw him out. You see, he's saying, listen, this stone that you builders rejected, he's the chief cornerstone. This Jesus, whom you thought was a nobody, he's in fact the very one that the entire temple and the entire Old Testament is built upon. You see, the cornerstone not only lays the foundation, it also squares the building. Jesus is the one upon which he is building a temple made of living stones. Peter goes on to say, and I'm looking around the room, looking at living stones. Men and women who've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is building a temple, not made with hands by man, but by the Spirit. And he's building a temple made up of people. He's building his church, those who love and trust in him. And here is Peter calling out these builders saying, you guys totally missed it. At the very foundation stone of what you're supposed to be building upon, you threw them out. But this is in fulfillment of what the Psalm says in Psalm 118. Now, you can imagine the Sanhedrin's response. They're shocked, y'all. And we'll see this next time when we get further on into the chapter of their response of what's happening here because they're like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys are unschooled, untrained, ordinary men. You guys are fishermen from Galilee. What do you do? You guys are preaching to us? You guys are bringing the word of God and applying it to us? We're the ones who do that. Can you believe this? There is total shock and awe amongst the Sanhedrin over this moment. Here are these two disciples, and they're like, they've been with Jesus, but these guys are telling us about us. Who are they to interpret the Old Testament? Okay, then Peter brings an elbow from the top rope. Verse 12, this is where he gives the exclusive gospel declaration. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Now, this is a great verse to memorize, by the way. It's a great verse to memorize. Peter is making the exclusive claim that salvation is found in no one, no one, no one other than Jesus. Okay, he's being abundantly clear here. He's laying out the exclusivity of the gospel. You see, the gospel is an exclusive message that is inclusive for the whole world. Salvation is found only in Jesus and Jesus alone, but it's open to the whole wide world. Anybody in everybody can get in on this. You are invited to believe the exclusive claim of the gospel, that salvation is found in Christ alone. Jesus is the one where we find salvation. 
Now, y'all, we live in a cultural moment in which our nation is a lot like Babylon, filled with lots of gods that people worship, and many who are trying to say all religions are the same. Uh, An example of this you may see as you drive around is a bumper sticker that says coexist. And this word coexist is made up of different symbols from various religions. And the whole idea behind the coexist bumper sticker is that all of these religions should exist together as one and the same because they are the same. Now, there's a couple of things. First, people who are driving those vehicles are image bearers. They're loved by God. And we are to show compassion. We are to pray for them. We don't cut them off in traffic, okay? We pray for them. We bless them. We, we pray for them, God to open their eyes to the gospel. But we're also a people who stand firm on what Jesus has abundantly clear. There's salvation in no one else other than Jesus. You see, Islam and Christianity make drastically different claims, and they both can't be true. They cannot coexist in the sense that they're both true. You can't follow Jesus and Muhammad. You have to choose. Both demand allegiance. The question is, which one is true? Well, here's what I want to help you with. I want to lay out for you, and it's in your notes, seven reasons Jesus is the only way of salvation. Some might say, well, why is Jesus the only way to God? You Christians, you're bigots, you're closed-minded, you're Nazis. I've heard all of it. You guys think you know it all. Let me just share with you from the scripture what God's word says about this. So I, I put in your notes seven reasons. There are many, many more, but I wanted you guys to have a chance to go eat lunch today. Uh, now I put, um, and it's not gonna be on the screens because we couldn't fit them, uh, 200 scripture cross-references. Uh, while I was laying in bed last week, I thought, well, I can't do anything except prepare a sermon. So I had a lot of time. <laughs> so if you go to the Westwood app, I put in there 200 cross-references of scripture that support each of these seven things. So what are the seven reasons Jesus is the only way of salvation? I gotta be fast. Number one, because Jesus is God. Repeatedly, over and over and over throughout the gospels, Jesus declares that he is God come in the flesh. He proved it, that his, that he, his deity through his miracles, through his teachings, through the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, let me give some examples here from scripture. Uh, John says it like this in John 5, that uh, This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. In fact, if you go read John chapter eight, we see where the Jews were trying to stone Jesus to death for blasphemy because he made the bold statement in John 8, 58, I truly, I tell you before Abraham was, I am. Meaning, I existed long before Abraham 1,600 years ago because he is the eternal son of God who has always existed. In 1 John 5.20, John says, we are in the true one that is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Hebrews 1.3 says that he sustains the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not some weak, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. This is the omnipotent Savior who is sovereign over the universe. That's who he is. And Jesus goes on record. He is God. 
Second reason is because Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Meaning Jesus was perfect in all of his ways. He never sinned. But at the cross, he was treated as if all sin was placed upon him so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews chapter 4. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Peter would go on to say in his letter, 1 Peter 2, uh, two uh, easy Kenneth, 22, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. It goes on, 1 John 3, 5, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. You see, as believers, we hold fast with a white-knuckled grip to the sinlessness of Jesus. You see, if Jesus ever sinned, you are headed for hell because it means he was not the perfect sacrifice on the cross. He could not perfectly pay for your sin or my sin. He couldn't do it if he had sinned. But because he was perfect, blameless and holy in all of his ways, because he never sinned, you are hidden clean in Christ. His blood was sufficient to atone for your sin and to wash you, make you clean and white as snow. So we hold fast to the sinlessness of Christ. Number three, why is Jesus the only way to God? Because Jesus said so. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 3, verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. This is Jesus saying this. Either receive me or reject me. But if you reject me, the wrath of God remains on you, Jesus says. In John 17, Jesus prayed to his father and he prayed, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. You see, if Jesus is not, the, is, um, is not the only way to heaven, if he's not the only way to God, he's a liar. And God cannot lie. But Jesus is not a liar. He always tells you the truth. And you can trust your soul upon what he says. And he goes on record, abundantly clear, black and white, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's an exclusive gospel that's inclusive to the whole world. This is where we stand as followers of Jesus, that he's not a way, he's not one of many ways, he is the way. He is the one who says salvation is found in no one else. Number four, why is Jesus the only way to God? Because Jesus defeated death. This is the very bedrock of what we believe as followers of Christ. In fact, you can't be a follower of Jesus unless you believe in the resurrection. You've got to grab hold of this. This is of first importance, first tier. 
Paul says it like this in 1 Peter 15. If, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. Y'all, if Jesus is still buried, let's eat, drink, and go watch football. For tomorrow we die. What's the point? If Jesus is not raised, I mean, call home the missionaries, shut the doors of the church, stop talking about the gospel. But because Jesus is alive, it changes everything. We've got a gospel to preach. We have a message. We have to get to the ends of the earth. We need all people to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. We want them to hear the good news of what Christ has done through his death and resurrection. That unless you trust in him, there's eternal death. We don't want anybody to go there. And that is not God's heart either. God desires for all to be saved and to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And he's made a way through his son. And the vehicle through which the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, to the nations and our neighbors, is us. Followers of Jesus who go and proclaim the good news of Jesus in our workplaces, at school, over the fence. This is where God has called us to be for such a time as this. At this day and time, in this time and moment in history, we get to go and preach Jesus to the people who are around us even now. We have a Savior who has defeated death. And because he defeated death, that means he is the only way to God. For he's the only one who's ever come back from death, never to die again. This is Jesus. You know what's interesting? As we're going to go throughout the rest of Acts, the Sanhedrin does not attempt to deny the fact that Jesus has risen. I don't know if you've ever, ever read that. I read that this week and I was like, huh, how about that? That the very ones who came up with a conspiracy theory to say that the disciples stole Jesus' body, they don't doubt that Jesus has risen. They don't try to deny it anywhere in the rest of the New Testament. You see, Jesus is alive. May I say to you, Mohammed is dead. Stephen Hawking is dead. Charles Darwin is dead. Jesus is alive. That changes everything. That means he is God. And he is the only way you can get to God. Fifthly, because Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. He's the only mediator. He's the only go-between, the only buffer, the one who represents 100% God and 100% man. He represents us both, one to the other, so that our sin is placed upon Jesus and God's wrath is placed upon Jesus at the cross. So now, who once were enemies, us and God, we're now friends because of Jesus, our mediator. Paul says it like this in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Number six, because Jesus is seated on his throne in heaven. He's seated on his throne. Jesus completed his work perfectly. He ascended back up into heaven. He sat down on his throne and that's where he's sitting even now, ruling and reigning right now, interceding on your behalf. And that is where he is. He's seated on his throne and he sat down, not because he was tired, but because all the work was done. Everything necessary to accomplish your salvation was completed by Jesus. And the fact that he sat down is proof that the work was complete. It was finished. Number seven, because Jesus urges people to believe exclusively upon him. 
over and over and over. There's an urgency in Jesus in which he's calling people to believe upon him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is continually calling people to believe, 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 trust in me. Bank your soul upon me. Y'all, your eternity hangs in the balance on if you believe the gospel. See, there's coming a day in which many of you will be in a coffin right about here. And myself or someone else on staff, we're going to preach your funeral. And what matters most in that moment is, do you know Jesus? There's nothing more important than this, is do you know Christ? In fact, this is the impact point. This is what I'm calling you to today, is I want you to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. I mean, don't trust in your good works. They're not good enough. They're never enough. Don't trust in the pedigree of your grandma or your parents or your spouse's faith. You need Jesus. You have to make the decision. You see, the kingdom of God is advancing and millions will come into the kingdom, but everybody comes in through a turnstile one at a time. You have to come in. The door is opened. You walk through and you believe the gospel and you trust in Christ. Why? Because there is no other name under heaven given among people by which you must be saved.